Um, you can answer by show of hands, just a quick question to start off with. Um, how many of y'all keep the books or keep books? And when I say that, like you, you write the checks at your house, you balance the bank accounts, all that sort of stuff. How many of y'all do that? Okay, for those of y'all that do that, how many of y'all actually enjoy that? Like you're like, that's fun. Okay, like, like one, one, one unique individual in here. Um, I keep the books at our house. I don't enjoy it. Like I can do details and do details really good, but it's really, really not my happy place. And so, so I kind of do that. So I, I'm, I, I can do you know credits and debits and balance and check, checkbook and all that sort of stuff. Not fun, um, but it's very much a necessary part of life, right? Like, like, like you have to know like what's going in, what's going out, or you know, you'll write checks that bounce or you'll try to pay bills online and they won't go through. So, so you have to maintain a really good ledger um, of credits and debits. You have to keep score. You have to keep a balance in your own life um, if you're going to be healthy financially. Um, that's awesome from a financial standpoint. Um, the problem is when we approach our relationships, we often approach them with kind of a credit debit mindset towards other people. And I'll give you an example from the life of Pastor Dylan that shows you just, just for, first off, how, how imperfect I am, uh, but often how we can often relate to people. So um, I'm about to go to a meeting. I can't even remember what it was for. It was something church-related. Um, and I was leaving, and so Grace was going to have both the boys. And as soon as I'm about to go out the door, Jaden, our, our second child, he's about five months old, almost six months old now. At that point, I don't know how old he was, maybe three. Um, he wakes up, and it's time for him to eat. And so Grace is like, hey, Hey, can you watch Kaysen for just about 10 minutes while I feed Jaden? And I wish that I could say that I was like, absolutely, sweetheart. I would just love to watch our child and serve you in that way. But here's where my mind went. It was, now hold on a second. Yesterday, you had a Zoom call, and um, I was bottle feeding Jaden, and I kept an eye on Kaysen while I was doing that. So I've already kind of checked that box, so maybe it's time for you to check that box. I didn't say it out loud. My face said it. You know how the sort of thing with like, your spouse asks you something, and you, like, you know how you want to respond, but you don't respond that way, but it's like all over your face, like, I really don't want to do this, right? Right, right. Most of us are not as subtle as we think. And so that's what's in my mind, but what comes out of my mouth is like, okay. And because my heart wasn't really in it, like, so, so in my mind, I'm like, like, I did this yesterday. She should do this today. This just feels like, like, so I'm, do, I'm doing credit and debit right there, right? And so I'm only kind of half-heartedly watching Kaysen. Well, incidentally, he, he starts misbehaving. Just uh, that's what kids do when, you know, you watch them half-heartedly. They misbehave. And so eventually it's like, okay, Kaysen, you're going to timeout. So I send him to timeout. He starts screaming. I go and do something else to get ready. I go and check on him in timeout. Well, he's in <clears throat> potty training mode at this point. <clears throat> underwear on, not a diaper. And as is normally happens when you put kids in potty training by themselves in isolation, what do you think happens? He poops. So now I have a mess to clean up. And so it's one of those things where it's like, you know what? If I had just been nice and just said, fine, I'll watch Kaysen, you know what? He wouldn't have misbehaved. He wouldn't have gone to timeout. He wouldn't have pooped to, to, in his underwear. And now, and like if you're grossed out by that, like I've got two kids under the age of two and a half, so like poop is my world right now. Like it, it, like it just is. Um, but if I'd just done the nice thing, like none of this would have happened, I would have been 10 minutes late instead of 20. Right? And so, so the point in that is this, like when we kind of engage in this sort of credit-debit sort of thinking in our mind, um, man, that often tends to backfire, Right? And it never leads us to serving people. It never leads us to building people up. It just kind of puts in this, us in this place where it's like, well, you owe me. And, and that can backfire, right? 
that can really, really backfire in pretty significant ways. And maybe my story is your story. Maybe your story is more like, well, you texted somebody and then they didn't respond or they responded in a way that they didn't mean it negatively, but you took it negatively. And, and now you're angry with them. And now you're going to react in one of two ways. You're either going to like be passive aggressive and just kind of ghost them. Right? And then they're going to be wondering, what in the world happened to our friendship? I thought we were friends, but they never talked to me anymore. And they're going to be really confused, and they're going to ask you about it, and you're going to be like, no, everything's fine because you're passive-aggressive and that sort of thing. Or you're going to be like, man, I'm going to let them know what's up, and I'm going to keep it real, and you lay the hammer down on them, and now you're both miserable, and you're both upset, and, and now there's this wall here, all because we tend to approach relationships with, with kind of a credit-debit mindset of, okay, I've done this, and now you owe me. And then when something does, somebody does something that steps out of line, we're like, okay, like I'm not okay with that. And what begins to happen is we become bitter and we become, we become angry and we become resentful and we start to kind of hold on to this unforgiveness in our heart and in our soul. Um, and I think all of us would probably agree, whether you're here and you're a Christian or, or maybe it's your first time in church in forever or maybe ever, um, we would tend to all agree that like that's not a good thing, Right? Well, like, even if you're not a Christian, we tend to agree with the idea of, like, we should forgive, right? We should forgive. We know unforgiveness is not a good thing. But at the same time, most of us would say, yeah, but I've kind of got a limit. Like, like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Like, I've kind of got a limit to, to how long I let this drag out before I just say, nope, we're, we're, we're just done. And so a guy named Peter actually exhibits this kind of thinking in, in Matthew chapter 18. He, he comes to Jesus, and this is what he says, starting in verse 21. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, <clears throat> how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? In other words, somebody has done something that I don't like, and man, Jesus, this keeps happening, it keeps happening, it keeps happening. Like, how many times do I really need to forgive? And then he says, up to seven times? Now, Peter is thinking he's being like super spiritual here. Because um, in Jewish thinking at that time, the Babylonian Talmud, which was a writing of, of kind of Jewish wisdom literature, that sort of thing, um, just kind of commentary on the Old Testament scriptures, what they would have considered their Bible. Um, and it said that, hey, the maximum time, number of times you have to forgive is three. And three's the limit. Once three's there, you're done. And so Peter knows this, and Peter's like, hey, Jesus, I'm going to be super spiritual because I know like you're the Son of God and all that sort of stuff. How many times do I really have to forgive? Like, like maybe seven times? Is seven times enough, and then I can, enough, and then I can just kind of cut them loose? And, and I can't prove this from the Bible, but my suspicion is that that's probably the number that he's at. He's probably like, Jesus, I've, I've gone way above and way beyond, but um, like, 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 am I off the hook now? And then Jesus comes back and answers this in verse 22. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or other translations may say 70 times seven. Now, what is Jesus saying here? He, he's not saying, well, well actually, Peter, um, you've got to go another 70 times, and once you hit 78, like, that's it. Like, like, like that's, that's not what he's saying. What Jesus is doing here is he's using up a hyperbole to say, no, there, there's actually no limit on forgiveness. Like forgiveness is actually unlimited. If somebody does something, you forgive them. They do it again. You forgive them. You forgive them. You keep on forgiving people, like, like no matter what they do, no matter how many times they do it. And you might say, well, why is that the case? And, and it's the case because of, 
It just flows from what we call the great commandment. The great commandment says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. The way we put it as life spring, life spring is live for God and love all people, and, and loving other people means being like Jesus. And so it begs the question, okay, well, how did Jesus love people? And the way Jesus loved people is, is he laid down his life for people. And so then we ask, okay, what does it look like to lay down my life for other people? What does loving like Jesus require of me? And that gets us to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 5. We, we've been in these section of verses all summer long. And, and, this, and this is what it says in, in 1 Corinthians 13, 5. It says, love keeps no record of wrongs. If we're going to love the way Jesus loved, then what has to be true? Keep no record of wrongs. No credits, no debits, no scorekeeping, just unlimited forgiveness over and over and over again, no matter what they've done. Now, in all reality, that sounds great, right? To, to, to some extent, but part of us wants to push back on that and say, well, I, I hear you, but like, does this mean God doesn't care? And this is especially true if you've been something particularly painful, betrayal, abuse, um, something along those lines. The question might be, well, well, does God just not care about what this person did? Like, like I'm supposed to forgive them? Does, does he even care about, about what they did? I would say, yeah, God absolutely cares. And the way you can tell that he cares is, is, is he went to the cross. Because, see, the truth of the matter is this. When we sin or when somebody else sins, like the primary person we owe or the primary person they owe is not us, and it's not that we owe somebody else and we sin. It's primarily that we owe God. You know, for example, when you go to Walmart, you buy something, there's always sales tax on there. And you kind of sort of owe that to Walmart, but actually you owe that to the state of North Carolina. It's, it's who you really owe it to. And in the same way, when somebody sins against us or when we sin against somebody else, like, like it feels like we've incurred a debt or they've incurred a debt, but the reality is that, that, that the primary person we owe is actually, is actually God. Why? Because God's the one who set the rules. God's the one who set the law. God's the one who defines what the mark is, and anything outside the mark is what he calls sin, and every sin incurs a debt against God. What that person did to you incurred a debt against God, but guess what? God already paid that debt. What you did to somebody else, that incurred a debt against God. But guess what? God already paid that debt. How did he do that? He sent Jesus Christ, his son, to earth to live a perfect, sinless life and then die on the cross for our sin, to pay our sin debt so that the ledger is gone. There is no more scorekeeping. There is no more credit debit, though the price has been paid. And because of that... Man, man, God absolutely cares. He cared so much that he paid the debt himself. But what that also means is this. When somebody sins against us and we withhold forgiveness, like, like from a, even from like a, a checking ledger standpoint, that doesn't even make sense. You know why? Because you can't go and collect on a debt that's already been paid. Right? Like anybody ever been double charged for something? Ever? Okay, how many of y'all were like, man, they double charged me? You know what? The corporation could probably use the money. Anybody ever done that? No. 
No, like for instance, um, when my wife and I had our 10-year anniversary a couple months ago, um, I booked a hotel in Myrtle Beach, and, 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 and I saw the one charge come through on the credit card, and then like two days later, another one for like about the same amount came through, and I was like, you, you can't charge me for this twice. Like, like, like I give to LifeSpring Church, I don't give to Hilton, okay? You know what, I mean, Hilton won't be around in eternity, right? And so I, and so I called him, I was like, hey, uh, this needs to go away, and, and it went away. You can't double charge somebody for a debt that's already been paid, and here's the reality. When we don't forgive somebody, we're trying to collect on a debt that's already been paid. And Jesus tells Peter a story that illustrates exactly what that looks like when we try to collect on something that God has already taken care of. So Matthew 18, starting in, let me get back over here to Matthew. Matthew 18, starting in verse 20. Three. Here we go. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Here's what 10,000 bags of gold was equal to. And this is Jesus using hyperbole. In that day and in that, in that time, that was 17 years worth of tax for the whole nation. 17 years worth of tax for the whole nation. In other words, this is a debt that there's no way this guy can pay. It's impossible. It is an unpayable debt. And it says, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt, knowing the debt can't actually be paid, so everything he has is going to be taken away from him. By the way, this is a picture of where we stand before God without Christ. We owe God an unpayable debt. Why? Because any sin against an infinitely perfect God is infinitely evil. Only somebody infinite in nature can pay that price. We're not infinite people. We're finite. We're created. We can't pay. And even, even death and eternity and hell cannot pay that debt. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross to die. Because he's the only one who could pay, who could pay the debt. And then verse 26, it says that this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him. Canceled the debt. And let him go. Now that's awesome. That, that is really... Anybody ever been let off the hook for something you did and you knew you deserved some punishment for it and they let you go? Anybody? Anybody? Probably speeding ticket, right? Like you were caught speeding. Policeman, policeman. Like, like, like I got let off the hook for like, you know, a, a, a light out or whatever. Like, but we've been in situations where somebody let us off the hook. Didn't that make you feel kind of nice? Right? Right? Might want to pay it forward a little bit. Watch what this guy does. And again, this is a picture of what happens when... When we hold on to unforgiveness. Well, what the master does here for this servant who owed him so much is a picture of what God does for us. But watch what this guy does. It says, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Now, for, for comparison, just in terms of like today's dollars, that would be like you owe somebody $10 million dollars. And, 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 and the person you owe it to, they let it go. But now somebody else owes you $8,200. That's not an insignificant amount of money. Like it's not, right? Like if somebody owed me $8,200, it'd be like, uh, we, we need to pay that, right? That's not insignificant. And in the same way, what, what that person did to you, guess what Jesus is saying through this story? It's not insignificant. It's not that, oh, well, that's just not a big deal and you just need to get over it. It's, it's not that at all. It's significant, but compared to $10 million, is it? Like in, in, in that day, in that time, 100 silver coins, that, that was about 100 days wages. Versus 
It's like not, not insignificant, but compared to 17 years worth of tax for the whole nation, it kind of pales in comparison, right? What Jesus is trying to teach Peter is, hey, what that person did to you, hey, yes, it's significant. But it pales in comparison to what we owe God, and God let it go. And by the way, God's let their debt go too, that they owe you. And so here's what it looks like when we continue to not forgive somebody. He grabbed the guy. He began to choke him. Pay me back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me. I will pay it back. It's like the same phrase the guy just said to the king. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should be paid back all he owed. Then watch this. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. God takes forgiveness very, very seriously. And in light of a blood-stained cross, it is incredibly offensive to God for us to not forgive somebody. Unforgiveness places us in the place of God and looks at God and say, yeah, I know that debt's already paid, but I'm going to collect on it. It's basically telling God, God, I think you messed up on that one. And that puts a block in your relationship with God. And it puts a block in your relationship with people. I mean, I mean nobody wants to be like this guy, right? And yet we so easily end up just like that. And so three realities about forgiveness and unforgiveness this morning. If you're taking notes, you can jot them down. The first one is this. Forgiveness results in freedom. Unforgiveness results in prison. Forgiveness results in freedom. Unforgiveness results in prison. We are currently in the phase of life where we're trying to figure out like what discipline actually works on our, on our two and a half year old. Like parents, y'all been there, right? Like, like you try one thing and, and it works for a little bit and then it doesn't work anymore because they just kind of move past it. Uh, so we've tried several different things. One of the things that we have tried and is not the primary method now, it's like an auxiliary method, is timeout. So Casey used to, when he would misbehave, it's, it's time. And these things change like almost week to week sometimes, you know, because they, they get wise to it. And so, you know, he's in timeout. The way he gets out of timeout is he says, I'm sorry. And so he gets out. He's free now. I have never had Casey come up and be like, Daddy, more time out for Kaysen. Like, he's never done that. He's never, like, asked to go back into timeout. Why? Because timeout is a miserable place where you can't play with your toys, right? Here's, here's the funny thing about unforgiveness, though. Unforgiveness is like us going up to God and saying, hey, God, I would love for you to limit my life. Can, can you put me in jail for a little bit and close the door? That'd be awesome. That, that, that's what it's like, and we know that because in Scripture, where did unforgiveness land the, the unmerciful servant? It, it landed him right back in prison. When you forgive somebody, guess what happens? Freedom. When you don't forgive somebody, guess what happens? You, you, you get prison in your life. You, you limit your life. Um, and see, here's what ends up happening. Um, it's said that we hold a grudge, 
But the truth of the matter is this. The longer you hold on to a grudge, the more a grudge holds you. We think we're the one holding a grudge, but reality is the longer you hold a grudge, the more a grudge holds you. And it ends up doing two things. You can jot this down. First off, it kills our ability to be with Jesus. One of our values as a church is to be with Jesus. The way Jesus puts it in John 15 is, is to abide with him, to remain with him, to stay close to him. That means to stay close to him, you, you do as Jesus says. Right? You, you think as Jesus thinks, you do as Jesus says. When you don't forgive somebody, you literally stop abiding with Jesus. Your relationship with God starts going sour. Because Jesus' heart is to forgive. But when we choose to not forgive, guess what? Our relationship with God starts, starts really souring. May I possibly suggest this morning, if you feel like your walk with Christ has kind of stagnated, has kind of shallowed out, is just kind of dry, could it possibly be that just maybe, just maybe, just maybe, that there's somebody in your life that you just simply haven't forgiven yet? Unforgiveness kills our ability to, to abide with Jesus, but it also absolutely kills our ability to love other people. And it doesn't just sour the relationship where we're holding unforgiveness. It sours other relationships. And I can tell you, as a pastor who's been in ministry for over a decade, I have seen, sadly, so many times, people that are bitter and hurt and refuse to forgive, eventually they end up taking it out on other people who had nothing to do with the problem. And so what I'm telling you guys is this. Man, if there's somebody you're not forgiving, that will eventually spill over into other relationships. You'll start to become suspicious. You'll start to become cynical. You'll start to become protective. Because once you have in your mind that other people will hurt you, it's so easy to build up walls to protect yourself and keep a distance. The problem is, as long as you stay distant, you literally can't love other people. Unforgiveness will create distance in your life from others. That's a problem because we need people. That's why we do this very uncomfortable community time thing at the beginning. I'm an introvert. It makes me really uncomfortable. But what I've learned is I need people up close. You can't get people up close as long as you're holding unforgiveness. Because you'll want to keep them at arm's length because you'll be like, well, I'm hurt. I'm hurt. And you might say, well, well I was hurt. And, and you know what? You were like, God is never going to look at you and say, you need to suck it up on that. You just need to get over that. He's not saying that at all. And the truth is, yeah, when somebody hurts you, you, you do kind of have a right to, to, to feel offended or to feel angry. And in fact, there are some things people do to you, you should feel angry. And if you don't feel angry, something's very, very broken. But the one thing we can't do is justify unforgiveness in the name of well, I'm right on this situation. I'm in the right. I'm fully in the right. They were fully in the wrong. Yeah, possibly, maybe. What, I, what I've learned is even when I feel like I'm really right, usually there's at least 5% that's on me. Not in every case, but, but, but in a lot of cases. And usually if it's with my wife, it's more like 90% on me. Right? But see, here's the thing. You can jot this down. The goal is not to be right, but to be restored. And we cannot restore while keeping score. The goal is not to be right. Like, like it's, it's awesome to be right, right? Pun intended. St stupid, cheesy pastor dad joke, right? You combine pastor with dad, you just get like the corniest jokes in the world. <laughs> one of the other pastors laughs because he knows it's true, right? 
It's great to be right. You know the problem with being right is if you cling to your rightness, like that might be the thing they pay, they put on your tombstone. For example, um, I, I went was went to my with my brother-in-law and sister uh, to the Global Leadership Summit. A host site was in at Wilmington at Life Point Church, and we're leaving uh, the site go on the lunch break. And this teenage food line worker steps out. He doesn't even look. Well, like I guess when they invented the smartphone, like they stopped teaching you to look both ways before you cross the street. But he just, boom, right out the door. And it's like, we weren't very close to him, but it's like, man, if somebody else was flying through here on the phone, he'd been dead. And he'd been like, he has the right of way. But, but I, I, I don't want he had the right of way to be written on my tombstone. You know what I'm saying? You can be right, and that can take you straight to your grave. The goal is not to be right. The goal is to be restored. When it comes to relationships, it's not about how right I am. It's, it's restoring. It's restoration. It's reconciliation. I can't restore while, while keeping score with people. Now, I love keeping score. Like, like, I, like that little question we did up front, uh, which one are you? Or do you have to win? Or do you have fun? How many of y'all have, you have to win? Like winning is like a thing. Okay, how many of y'all are like, I just can have fun. It's no big deal. I can have fun. Okay, like the more laid back people. Like, like for me, I have to win. I have to win. Um, Kaysen is two and a half. He'll be three next spring. Um, really thinking about starting the t-ball process. But I'll just be honest. Like, it irks me to no end that they don't keep scoring t-ball. <laughs> Y'all, that bothered When I was five-year-old, we kept scoring t-ball. My five-year-old t-ball team won the league championship. I used to have the trophy that said so. I don't remember it, but mom and dad and the trophy said so. So there we go. We kept score. And like I, like, I can't fathom like how in any sort of competition, you don't keep score. That makes no sense to me. It's like, well, we play for fun. Well, winning is fun and losing sucks. Right? And so I'm all about keeping score because if you're not first, you're last. And I want to know if I won. Right? Because if I didn't win, why would I even play? Now, that is an awesome mindset for a game. Right? Like you, you will win with that mindset. But if that's your thinking in relationships... Man, you'll lose. And you'll lose hard. Because the goal is not to be right. The goal is to be restored. You can't keep score. You can't be restored while keeping score. You might say, well, where in the world do you get this? Um, it's the model Jesus showed us. Because you know who was completely right when it came to judging our sin? Jesus. Like Jesus could have said, yeah, the human race, they sin, and so, you know, hell, fire, and brimstone, boom, that's it. And he would have been absolutely right, no questions. No questions. But it's not what he did. Instead, he did this, you know, going back to 2 Corinthians, we read it a little while ago, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 18. It says this, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. The way um, John, writing in his account of the life of Jesus, puts it is that Jesus' final word on the cross was in Greek to telestai. It's an accounting term. It means paid in full. In English, it's typically translated as it is finished, but it's an accounting term that people would stamp on people's bills back then, and it meant paid in full. Jesus was right, but you know what he didn't do? He didn't keep score. He paid the thing himself. He paid the debt himself. Why? So that we could be reconciled and restored in a relationship with our Heavenly Father through Christ. And that's the model he calls us to. Not to cling to, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, but 
okay, what is it going to take to restore this relationship? Well, it's going to start with forgiveness. And here's what happens when, when we start to engage in, in that process. And let me say this, man, forgiveness really is a process. Like some people will say forgiveness, is just, it just happens and that's it. No, forgiveness is a process. Like what I've found in my life when I forgive somebody, often it's over and over and over and over again until it's just a repetitive soundtrack in my mind and it's no, and, and it's no longer an issue. But guys, that takes time. That can take years. It can take decades. Forgiveness is not, I've let it go and, and now I don't think about it and it doesn't hurt me anymore. It's no, every single time it comes up into my mind, I say, no, I choose to let that go because God's let it go. And here's what happens when we forgive. Uh, the first is this, this won't be on the screen, but jot it down. Forgiveness often restores us with others. Notice I said often. Because there are some cases where forgiveness will not restore the relationship. Maybe it's because there's just been too much damage, like in an abusive situation. When it's like it would literally be dangerous to get back in that relationship, or maybe the other person has passed away. So there are some cases where restoration is not going to happen. But in so many cases, what I have found is true is this: um, so many times I'm just one intentional, difficult, honest conversation away from forgiveness, from reconciliation happening. And restoration, like, like I do want us to understand this: that doesn't mean you're best buddies with the person. But it does mean the water's under the bridge and you let it go and you now hold no ill will to that person. Often forgiveness will restore us with other people. Sometimes it won't. But what it will always do is this. You can write this down. Forgiveness always frees our soul from unnecessary baggage. It always frees our soul from unnecessary baggage. Because if you, whether you realize it or not, when you are holding on to unforgiveness, there is a weight inside of you that you are carrying around that is dragging your soul down. And here's how I found this out. Um, last summer about this time, uh, my brother-in-law mentors me. He takes me through some different lessons, and this one was about unforgiveness. And honestly, I was kind of like halfway engaged in it because I was like, well, I don't really struggle with this. And then he got us some questions at the end, like, who, who's, who's somebody you need to forgive? And so I thought about it, and I was like, okay, well, maybe two people. And so I jotted those two names down. And man, then it was like the Holy Spirit opened the floodgates in my soul. And after the next two days, guys, it was about 100 names of people that had hurt me, wounded me, offended me, that I just needed to go through person by person of acknowledging, yes, it hurt, yes, it was wrong, but at some point, I chose to not forgive. I chose, chose to hold on to anger. I chose to not work through it. I chose to not forgive. And it was about 100 names after those two days. And I've never had this happen before, um, but man, literally the only way I can describe it after I got done with that is my soul felt lighter. My soul felt lighter. And so the question I would have for each of us is, um, how long would that list be for you? If you got alone with the Lord and got quiet and just started and just asked the Holy Spirit, okay, Holy Spirit, who, who, who am I holding unforgiveness to? See, here's the way, here, here, here's a, a good clue. Um, when we drop the line of, well, I forgive, but I don't forget. It's not very Christ-like because Scripture says he, he, he throws our sins into the ocean as if he doesn't remember them. It may not restore the relationship, guys, but it will always free our soul from unnecessary baggage. That's why Proverbs 19.11 says this. It'll be on the screen. It says, A person's wisdom yields patience. Then watch this. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. 
In other words, it makes you good. You look good when you let it go. Now, you might say, well, Dylan, does that mean we never confront people? Absolutely not. In fact, so often restoration requires like honest confrontation, honest, grace-filled, direct confrontation. But here's why we'll say this. Um, before you go confronting somebody, pause and check your motives. Because so often our motive in confrontation is not to reconcile the relationship, it's to get our pound of flesh. For example, um, you might say, Dylan, after this example, you might say, Dylan, you've got a lot of problems. I, I, I do. And I need God's grace in my life. I'm not a perfect pastor. I'm learning and I'm growing just like you guys are. And if I tell you something, it's just so, maybe you won't make, make the same mistake. So. Um, but this is probably, I don't know, maybe like uh, 2018, that sort of thing. My wife and I are back, coming back from vacation. We're having this conversation of like, like how am I doing as a spouse? Well, which is always eye-opening. It's a healthy conversation. You should have it. But just be prepared because your spouse is going to be like, well, you know, there's some things here that, that, that they, they kind of bug me a little bit. Right? And so Grace is kind of having that moment, and then we stop, and, and she goes to the restroom, and I'm in the car, and I'm like, I'm bugged at this point. I'm really irritated. And I'm, so I'm starting in my mind to like nitpick and be like, okay, let me pick out all these things that kind of annoy me a little bit and just say, well, there's this, this, and this. And God's like, Dylan, what's your motive in this? And it's like, well, God, I don't want there to be anything between us. And he's like, son, you feel kind of crappy because she just called out all your junk. Like, you're not trying to call her junk. You're just being nitpicky just so you can get your pound of flesh and feel better about yourself. And I was like, I won't say anything. And so I just let it go. Not because I'm good, because God got me around the nap of the neck and said, you better not say anything. Sometimes we need to slow down long enough so that we can hear the Holy Spirit say, shut up. Right? Like, like, like we just do. And so, man, before you confront somebody, I'm not saying never confront, but, man, do let the Holy Spirit really, really evaluate your motives in that. Because so often it's not that I want the relationship to get better. So often it's I, I, really, want my, I really want my pound of flesh. And it really goes along with Romans 12, 19. This has come up several times in this, in this series, but, but it's just so applicable to, to how love is supposed to react to people. But Paul writes this in Romans 12, 19. He says, do not take revenge, my dear friends. Don't, 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 don't keep score. Don't keep track of the credits and debits. Don't try to pay somebody back. Don't seek your pound of flesh. But leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And what Paul is saying there, like we can, we can really twist that into like a self-centered thing because we can be like, ooh, God's wrath, I like that. So I'm just going to step back. And I'm just going to pray that God will lower the boom on this person. And when he does, I'm going to be like, yes, you deserve that. And I didn't do it. I just stepped back and I was like, God's going to take care of it. And God took care of it. And now I'm like feeling great about myself inside. Guys, I don't think that's what Paul is trying to get us to think about there. I think the primary point Paul is getting across there when he says, leave room for God's wrath is what he's saying is give God room to work in the other person's life. Give God space and stop trying to usurp the role of the Holy Spirit by jumping all over somebody. Because it may be great if you go and confront somebody and force them to apologize. You know what's so much better? When the Holy Spirit works on them and they come up on their own accord through the prompting of the Holy Spirit and say, man, I'm sorry. Guys, especially if we're dealing with another follower of Christ. If we're dealing with another follower of Christ, we got to believe that the same Holy Spirit who lives in me is the same Holy Spirit who lives in them. 
And sometimes we just need to step back and be like, God, I'm going to trust you to work in somebody's life. And oftentimes, when we, when we jump that process, we actually limit the work of God in somebody else's life. But you know what we also do? We also limit the work of God in our own life. And here's the primary reason why. Because unforgiveness results in forgetfulness of God's forgiveness. Unforgiveness results in forgetfulness of God's forgiveness. See, back to my opening illustration where, where I was like kind of credit debit scorekeeping with grace and i was like well i watched both kids while feeding Jaden the other day and so i feel like you should do that now here's the reality we often keep track of only like one side of the ledger and that's what the other person owes us we often think about what we owe the other person so had i thought about it i would have realized i actually owe my wife a lot more than that one little bit because at the time, she was getting up twice a night to, to, to nurse Jaden, and my contribution to that was like five minutes at a time, just changing the diaper, then waddling back to bed. Her contribution was 45 minutes, staying up to make sure he got fed both times. It starts to not feel good. She's in the process of still recovering from pregnancy at that time, to which my contribution was quite small. You're right. And so it's like, she went through nine months, and now we're on the other side of this. I actually owe her a lot more than probably that. See, the point of that is this. When we keep score, we tend to keep score of like, our, like only what the other person owes us. And we forget about our side of the ledger. And, and the same thing happens when we approach things with, other, with, with God. We tend to think of what other people owe us, but not what we owe God. See, Peter ain't the wicked servant did this. Peter's like, hey, Jesus, what happens when this guy sins against me? And the wicked servant is like, this guy owes me. And we forget that even though we owed God a debt that we could not repay, not even remotely, Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, paid the debt in full, rose from the dead, and now despite my sin, invites me into his family, saves me by his grace. And then even when I fail and fall on the other side of salvation, he keeps forgiving me. He keeps loving me. He keeps drawing me closer. And we don't forget, or excuse me, when we don't forgive, man, we completely forget about that. Completely forget about that. Because my role is very simple at the end of the day. It's just don't forget the gospel. Don't forget what God did for you, and don't forget the fact that your simple responsibility is to extend that to other people. So the band is going to come up, and we're, we're, I'm going to pray. Then we're going to sing a song. And then on the other side of that song, we're going to, we're going to partake in communion, and, and, and the communion cups are, are in the chair right in front of you. Um, but, but, and we'll take together after the song. But, but what Paul teaches us when it comes to communion is, first off, if you're not yet a Christian, communion is not for you. Um, and there's some different reasons for that. But, but suffice it to say, if you're not a Christian, um, then, then, then it's not for you. But he also says this, that, that every single person should examine themselves before communion. And, and so this is a moment, like, like as they sing, um, you can stand or you can sit, but whatever posture would be best for you, let God examine your heart, okay? Let God begin to evaluate what, what's going on in your soul. Is there unfor Specifically, is there unforgiveness in there? 
and then start the process of forgiveness. Maybe you need to send a text message and arrange a meeting with somebody. Maybe you need to tell somebody that you forgive them. Maybe you need to have a phone call. I don't know what it is, but, but let God work in your heart to examine your heart during this time. And let him examine it in light of, man, Jesus paid our debt and he paid it in full. And am I, in light of that, am I trying to charge somebody for a debt that's already been settled? So, Father God, I pray over the next few moments as we listen to this song, I pray you'll work deeply in our hearts. I pray you will bring deep conviction, Holy Spirit. And that when this is done, we, we, we will, you'll move us to a posture of, of forgiving people and starting that process for some of us and moving us to have the conversations that we need to have. Jesus, in your name.